with me this morning to our text in Luke chapter 14, Luke's gospel chapter 14. Of course, our text this morning does have a context and the context we considered for those of you who were here last week were the, the previous section of Luke chapter 14. Where Jesus has been invited back to 14.1. Jesus has been invited to participate at a meal with the Pharisees and the lawyers or the scribes of his day. The religious elite. And Jesus takes the opportunity to, to give, them give them instruction. First of all regarding healing on the Sabbath day. Because the man with palsy is in their midst. And Jesus asks them just very simply. Well is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? And by their silence, their answer is no, but they've encountered this before, so they choose not to speak. And Jesus, by his action of healing this man, indicates that yes, it is answer. The answer is yes, it is lawful. It is according and consistent with the law of God to, to heal on the Sabbath day. And then he notes how they're jockeying for positions at the table. The positions at the table that indicate them to be a, pure, a people of prestige. And Jesus takes that occasion to give them instruction to take the low place, to take the low seat lest you risk being embarrassed, but also you have the opportunity for your host to say, come on up, you deserve a higher place. And certainly an application there of what is to be consistent in the heart of a Christian, that we be those who demonstrate a spirit of humility and grace. And then to leave no one out, he speaks to the host who has invited these noble people, these noble guests, and, and he tells and gives them instruction that when you have a wedding feast, you invite people to come, or luncheon or a dinner. You invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, those who have no means to repay you, to return the favor. And certainly a demonstration of the, of the grace of God, and consistent with the character of God. And then we considered last week in verses 15 and following of, chapter, of Luke chapter 14, where... An individual at the table, he speaks up. Perhaps he senses the tension of the moment. And, and his words in verse 15 are recorded, recorded, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus picks up on that. And he gives the parable of the dinner. And this man who sends out an invitation for some to come into his, to this feast. And those who indicate they will come when the actual occasion for the feast does come, they present their excuses of why they cannot come again presented as very lame and shallow excuses the real spirit is this i don't want to come and any excuse will do don't expect me this excuse should be satisfactory so the invitation is expanded the host when he receives word back from his servant their slave that he sent out he's received this word back that these people aren't coming he and he sends them out he says you go out and you invite these these poor and these lame and these blind and these crippled, these are the people who will come to my feast. Let those come. And so the servant goes out, he brings those in, he gives, comes back and says, but there's still room. And then in verse 23, he says, you go out to the highways and along the hedges, those who would be the, the social outcasts. And you tell those people to come in. But these are the people I want to come and to enjoy this feast. And then we looked at verse 24. And we recognize that verse 24 is not the words of the host. Who is invited. Speaking to the servant. Verse 24. The words of Jesus. To his hearers. I tell you. 
None of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. Jesus is the host of the feast which this man speaks of, anticipating in verse 15. So, with that background, you come to our text today, and it appears that that access to God's kingdom, that the doors have been just thrown wide open. The social outcast, the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, they've been invited. The spiritual outsiders, those who you go into outside the city, to the hedges and to the highways, those have been invited. Welcome to come into God's kingdom to participate at Christ's table. But our text today counters any potential misunderstanding regarding the nature of this invitation. In fact, last week we read another parable that's recorded in Matthew's gospel that's very similar to the text that we read that we, that we considered last week here in Luke chapter 14. And in that, the wedding feast is offered. Those who are invited to come in. But there is one who is in the midst of this wedding feast. He is inappropriately dressed. And so therefore, he is rebuked and he is in fact cast out. According to Matthew twenty-two eleven and following. And it's where that's recorded. So lest one determine that entering into God's kingdom... Or being Christ's disciple is a come as you wish on your own terms. However, you might see fit proposition. Jesus speaks very clearly in our text today. So begin reading with me in Luke chapter 14 verses 25 and following. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soul or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
there are a variety of models out if you haven't if you're not aware of, of church models for church growth. Uh, some have fallen into the the Willow Creek model after the group up in Illinois, I believe is where it is, where you do all types of things and to appeal to whoever might come and, and thousands are coming. Then there's the the purpose driven model that's presented to us and again to try to appeal to the masses, and again, in many cases, uh, one even locally here, thousands come. You know, and you can do some reading on, on church growth, and there are seminars, church growth seminars, and many of those, as they present their, their teaching regarding church growth and those type things, they try, at least to some degree, to go to the Scripture and even to model after the ministry of Jesus. And you look at Jesus, and what do you see? You see that there's this multitude surrounding him. There's been thousands that begin to gather around Jesus and to follow after him. So much so they begin to, to trip over one another. One of the things that I find strangely missing of those who would attempt to model church growth after Jesus' pattern is they don't deal with this type of issue. The point you get where it seems that Jesus deliberately says difficult things when the masses are there and there's this massive dispersion. People leave. They hear the words of Jesus and it says though Jesus has some type of an, an agenda to make this thing as difficult as he can and so those who hear it, they don't like what they hear and they go. And we're dealing with one of those texts today, aren't we? You know, how many church growth seminars do you go to? And they say, oh, by the way, you need to deal with people as Jesus did. Well, Jesus makes it very clear in our text today that this thing called coming to Him, this thing called discipleship, this thing called Christianity... Is something you need to get right. And you need to get it right from the start. You know, if you leave a port in a boat and you have a, a path to which you are to follow, there is a specific direction you are to go, and you begin in that direction, do you know at the very beginning, if you're only one degree off, it doesn't appear to be so great, does it? But as you go further and further, only one degree off, your destinations become further and further apart. And so it is in following after Jesus Christ. If we're off on this thing about discipleship and the goal, the aim is that we have eternity with Him in heaven and we're one degree off of that, eventually you'll see that when the, as those lines go longer and longer, they become further and further apart and you're nowhere near your intended destination. We must get this thing called discipleship. And incidentally, I make no distinction between discipleship and Christianity. Those who have determined that, that you can become a Christian and then later if you want to get serious about following Christ, you can become a disciple. I don't think that's biblical. I think it is a very dangerous teaching. The scriptural position is to come to Christ 
is to be a disciple of Christ. It's to follow Christ. It's to give yourself to Him. And we must get this thing right from the beginning point. And Jesus makes that very clear here. So if we're going to get it right, what are the things that we must get right? First of all, Christ must be rightly esteemed. Christ must be rightly esteemed. Jesus comes and He uses some very strong language, doesn't He, in verse 26? That's pretty strong. If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's strong language, isn't it? We've read this before, haven't we? And even as we read it, even as I read it a moment ago, I thought, man, this still strikes me as being very strong. To say something like, you don't hate your own father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and sisters and even your own life. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be a follower of Christ. What kind of a language is this? We know that it certainly would not be that we take this in a literal sense in that Christ commands us to love. He commands us to honor and to love parents. He commands through the writings of the Apostle Paul. We're commanded in the Scripture for husbands to love their wives. We're commanded even by the words of Jesus Himself in Luke chapter 6, we considered a long time ago, we're even to love our enemies. So what is this language of, if anyone comes to me and he does not hate, you know, in the positive, he's saying this, if you're going to come to me, you must hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children, your brothers and sisters, even your own life. How are we to understand this? Well, I think it's what we would call a hyperbole. It's a deliberate exaggeration. Number one, to gain attention. And let me tell you, I suspect that after he said this, some ears perked up. We've been trying to get this thing right, Jesus. We've been trying to get this thing about loving our enemies Loving those who don't love us. We've been working hard trying to get this right. And here all of a sudden, now you're coming. If you don't hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children, you can't be my disciple. Wait a minute. This isn't coming together here. But we would see it as a hyperbole, this exaggeration to gain attention, but also to make a point. The point being this. Love for and devotion to Jesus Christ must exceed all other loves, all other devotions, all other demands that be made upon us. Jesus Christ is to be preeminent. He must be rightly esteemed. So that ever, if ever there comes a time when the demands of loyalty to Christ are contradicted and challenged by the demands of of anyone or anything else. Christ is obeyed. Christ is loved. My loyalty is first and foremost to Him. He must be esteemed in such a way. See, discipleship demands a supreme love. 
for Jesus Christ. It's a love over people. To love Christ supremely more than we would love anyone. Those naturally expected to love. We expect to have a natural love for husbands and wives and children. It's natural. And Jesus says there's a love that's just to exceed that. That's supposed to be a love for me. A love for me that excels all other loves, all other affections. It's a love for Christ over personal ambition. He even says there in that list there, you must even hate your own life. To hate your own life, to lay aside your own personal ambitions, to recognize that when I come to Christ, to come to Christ, Christ rules and I do not. My life is no longer my own. My ambitions, my goals are no longer my own. I am His and what He says I am to do. It is to be a love over personal comfort and convenience. The language He uses here is to take up His own cross. Verse 27. Whoever does not carry His own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. Let me tell you something. They knew. In their day, when you start talking about crosses, they knew what he meant. Because they lived in a culture, the Roman Empire, where they crucified the criminals. They understood to say to take up your cross is to give up your life, is to die for the sake of another. It's placing the sentence of death upon oneself For the sake and for the privilege of being Christ's. Of being His. And it's a love for Christ. It is over possessions. Verse 33. None of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his own possessions. Does he mean to literally give up, to literally give away all that you have? Of course, he does not. We know that. But it does mean this. It means that you are to recognize Christ's lordship over what you possess. And to hold these things loosely. And in fact, to recognize that I have nothing more than a stewardship. After all, after all, if Christ possesses me... He possesses all that I claim as mine. And it's to recognize His right over those things. To say that Christ is Lord over my life. To say Christ is Lord over all that I possess. These are not my things. And so I hold these things with a loose hand. If God gives them to me, I enjoy them. If God sees fit to take them from me, I let them go without resentment, without, without any remorse toward God. And choose it. Choose to recognize that it is good as part of His sovereign will in my life. So how important is this principle of rightly esteeming Christ? How important is that? Well, Jesus says it this way in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and he doesn't do these things and just skip with me down to the end of the verse, he cannot. He cannot. Be my disciple. In other words, I don't accept him as my disciple. Verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me 
cannot, cannot be my disciple. And then in verse the, what the anyone of verse 26 and the, twin, the whoever of verse 27 becomes very specific, very personal down in verse 33, doesn't it? He says, so then none of you. Can you imagine this? Here's the crowd. They've gathered around. They're excited about what Jesus has said about you know, this, this feast being open to the blind and the lame and the weak and the poor. And they seem to have got some... Hey, this thing's wide open. Let's go. Come on. He's, he's inviting us in here. That's what He's saying here. And Jesus turns to that multitude and says, You cannot, you cannot be My disciple if you do not give all your possessions up. So according to the words of Jesus, this is a necessary, this is a necessary truth to rightly esteem Christ and by doing so that we rightly see the value, the comparative value of other things and of lesser things. Doesn't it strike as being rather extreme? I mean, let's face it, Jesus, not everyone's, not everyone's ready for this type of a commitment. Aren't you going a bit too far in your expectations to to expect that those who are here are going to respond to this and say, yes, let's go. People aren't there. They're not ready to to embrace this kind of a teaching. Why make it so difficult? Isn't this a bit extreme? You don't consider you don't consider these things to be extreme if Christ is rightly esteemed. If you really know Jesus Christ for who He is, for who He claims to be, if you understand Christ to be God in the flesh, it's not too much to say you must love Him supremely. You must love Him over anyone or anything else. You must love Him to the degree that you're willing to give up the right to rule and to reign your own life. You must love Him to the degree that you'll give up whatever it takes to surrender all of your possessions if it means you have Him. It's not extreme. If you know who Christ is, it's extreme to the the casual observer. Those who look at Christ and think of a, of a great teacher or a great man or a great individual. Or in these days, he's a great guy to hang around. But listen, do I want to commit my life to him? Do I love Jesus like this? No. Very simply, speaking to a largely Jewish crowd, Very simply, all Jesus is saying here is obey the first commandment. You have no other God before me or beside me. That's all he's saying. If God is is God, he deserves such loyalty. He deserves such love. And if Christ be God. He deserves such loyalty, such devotion, such love. So the first thing we see is that Christ must be rightly 
esteem. You know, Paul talks about in his own experience in Philippians chapter three, he speaks of all things being lost in view of what? In view of the surpassing value. You know, Paul's a man who had a lot, didn't he? Trained in the best of the schools, a Pharisee of Pharisees. In his day, in his culture, a highly respected. He's a man who's on his way up. He's going somewhere. Until he encounters Christ. Roy Hessen, I think I've mentioned before, the old evangelist pastor. He said what happened to Paul was that on his way up, he met someone on his way down. On his way up to greatness, he met someone, Jesus Christ, who was humbling himself, who had humbled himself. And Paul looked at all that he had. And he, Paul, considered the, the grace of God that brought him to himself on that road to Damascus. And Paul looked at what he had now, and he says, this is what I've got. I've got the surpassing value of knowing Christ, surpassing what? Surpassing everything that he had, and anything he'd ever hoped for, and dreams included. All of his ambition laid aside. Kind of all these things is lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Say, <clears throat> so all you get out of this discipleship deal is Jesus. And if that's not enough, you won't come. Because it's going to cost you everything. You say, you mean I've got to get rid of my stuff? No. But you're going to dethrone yourself. Or He's going to dethrone you. And He's going to be the Lord. It will cost you everything. Jesus. And what are referred to as the kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13. One of those He speaks of this treasure that is hidden in a field and a man he, he goes and he, he comes across this treasure he realizes in his fields he buries it back and he goes out and he gives up everything that he has he sells all that he has so he can go and buy this little piece of real estate in the eyes of everyone else you're going to give everything you have to buy that little piece of land but he knows something there's a treasure there and when he buys that land that treasure is his and then Jesus talks about a, a merchant who is going and he's in search of some pearls and he finds this pearl of great value, the pearl of great price, the King James Version calls it. And he finds this pearl of great price and so that he, he goes and he sells everything else so that he might have this one. I mean, is Christ such a treasure to you? Is Christ your pearl of great value? Christ, your treasure. To say, yes, I've lost all. I've lost much. As Paul said, yes, I lost these things. But I've come out ahead. I've gained Christ. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. You know, our hymnody has some challenging 
expressions in our songs. And we don't, you may not know some of these, but some of them, I was just thinking as I prepared this message, you know, there's one song, Jesus is all the world to me. You know, you know that hymn. Jesus is all the world to me, my life, my joy, my all. Is he? Is Jesus all the world to you? You can hear George Beverly Shea singing, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have the hymn ends somewhere the expression, something along the lines of, I'd rather have Jesus than anything that this old world affords. And how about the hymn, All that thrills my soul is Jesus. He is more than life to me, and the fairest of ten thousand in my blessed Lord I see. Let me ask you something, folks. Is that your testimony? Is that something that we can sing, but we can't really express our hearts? Is Jesus... All that thrills your soul. Is He sufficient? Is He worth whatever it may take? Whatever the price. Which we're going to look at here in just a moment. Is He worth all that? To rightly esteem Christ. He must be rightly esteemed. He must be loved above all things. Secondly, on getting this discipleship and coming to Christ right. Coming must be rightly weighed. Coming, and I'm speaking of coming to Him. Coming must be rightly weighed. How much thought... Should one give to coming to Christ? Following after Christ? Well, Jesus brings it into perspective for His disciples and likewise for us here. He likens it to what we would deem two important decisions in worldly matters. And the implication being, it's worthy of at least this much consideration. This thing of being a disciple, being a follower of Christ. The first one he says in verse 28. Which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? So he speaks just very personally to them. Which one of you? Which one of you? If you're going to build this great tower... Got this great plan. Which one of you would not first sit down and consider whether or not you've got the money to complete it? You know, the given answer would be, well, of course I would. And likely, as he's speaking to this group of people, these aren't rich people. He's speaking to he's speaking to a mass of just common, ordinary people. They don't have money to throw away and frivolous ideas and plans. So, if they decide for whatever reason they want to build this tower, either for protection or for visibility or whatever, they want to build this tower, 
And you think about it. To think about and to calculate the cost. And then to determine, this is what I expect it will cost me to do this. Do I have enough to do it? That makes good sense. Then he goes on in verse 31. Or what a king. Let's take this to another level. What king? When he sets out to meet another king in battle. In other words, the indication seems to be that there is an enemy king who is coming against you. So this king who is about to be attacked, what does he do? He would sit down and to consider whether or not with his 10,000, he's able to defeat one coming with 20,000. And then in the process, besides, you know, there's just no way here. He sends for terms of peace. You know, the first one who would, that he spoke to them of building this tower. You're going to sit down, you're going to calculate the cost of these things. If for no other reason, you're going to do it to avoid being ridiculed. Verse 29 and 30. I mean, if for no other reason, you're going to do that. Because you don't want to face the music. When you started something you couldn't have done, people are laughing. You ever, you ever been to a place or a building or a home? I saw a home in Middle Tennessee. It was built. It was one of these structures going up with, instead of using the, the wooden studs, they were using steel studs. And this thing was going up, and all of a sudden it stopped. For a long time. <laughs> and I went by that place for over a year, and it nothing. I think finally whoever had started the building ended up selling it because they couldn't finish it. And so you have here, if for no other reason, you want to avoid the ridicule. But then the king here, on the other hand, he sits down and he considers, I've got 10,000 men, capable men. He's coming at me with 20,000. All right, that means everyone's got to get two and nobody die here. Boy, that's not very good odds. <laughs> so if for no other reason, to avoid the appearance of... of Foolishly going into a battle which you know you have no chance to win. To avoid the defeat, death, he's willing to consider peace. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be under his rule, but I'd rather be under him in peace than be dead. So likewise, a commitment to Christ should be carefully considered. That's his point here. Ready to give and recognizing that this king, as he's, as he's got his 10,000 up against 20,000, he's not going to send out 5,000. Hope that does the trick. He knows it's going to take everything that I've got and I would hope for some more. It's going to take all of my 10,000 and hope some of his 20,000 are AWOL or sick and can't come to battle. Are the ones who would build this tower. Again, this isn't a wealthy people. It's, you don't have resources to throw away. It's going to take potentially whatever you've got to pour into it. Whatever it's got, I'm willing to give it to finish this thing. So what's the goal? What's the goal? The goal is not to start and to build a tower. 
The goal is completion. What's the goal for the king? The goal is not to go into battle and give a good appearance of things. The goal is to come out alive and to win. So likewise, what's the goal of discipleship to Christ? What's the purpose? What's the end result? That is that we finish well, that we carry on and to the very end, whatever is required of us. And so Jesus illustrates that there in verses 34 and 35. Therefore, salt is good. Following Jesus is good. To choose to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is good. It's a good thing to do. But if salt becomes tasteless, it is useless for soil or manure power. What do you do? What do you do with salt? It's not any good. It's not salty. It's lost the saltiness because of impurities in it. You can't even, you can't throw it into your yard. It kills everything. You can't put it in the compost manure pile because then it makes that of no good. You know, and, and Matthew's account, he gives a story. Jesus used a very similar, similar parallel. It says, it's good for nothing. It's said to be trampled underfoot by men. Not many things more useless than salt. That is not being salty. It's not doing its work of preservation. Not many things more useless than that. What do you do with it? You've got to be careful where you dump this stuff. You know, if you make homemade ice cream, you know, the old water with the salt in it. I mean, man, I use it for grass killer. Poison ivy killer. Hey, have it all. <laughs> because you can't put it anywhere else. You've got to be careful with that stuff. What about... A disciple who can't finish the course. What about a believer? And I use that under quotations because I understand here we're not talking about someone who's truly converted. We're talking about someone who has come in a spurious or they haven't thought this thing through or they've misunderstood what Christianity is and so they've, they've made it something for themselves to do and they, they try to come and they get started and they, and they burn with such zeal for a season and they die out. What good are they? It doesn't finish if a disciple, one who is a would-be follower of Christ, it doesn't finish He's worse than a builder who fails to calculate the cost. He's worse than a king who fails to consider his strength. Point in case. Judas. What value was that man? You know, he gets to the end of his life. What has he accomplished? His own evaluation is it's not worth living anymore. So he kills himself. Jesus' evaluation is, although it was necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed, woe be to that man through whom it happens. Coming to Christ is the most crucial decision one can make. 
It's not just a matter of personal interest. It's not a matter that we consider with some kind of a nonchalant why not attitude. Why shouldn't I just be a Christian? I know some Christians. They're pretty nice people. I think I'll be a Christian too. What Jesus' instruction is you need, to, you need to weigh to weigh this matter very carefully. Because it will require every resource that you have and then some. And then some. So coming to Him must be rightly weighed. It's due. It's due. An appropriate consideration. And finally, to get this thing of discipleship right, we must understand that this, this counsel must be rightly understood. This counsel must be rightly understood. I want to look at the last part of verse 35 here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, Jesus recognized that not everyone who is within the range of his voice and hearing his message that day were going to respond the same. So he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's a expression that he used on other occasions. Luke records an account in Luke chapter 8, verse 8, and there in the context of the parable of the sower. And if we get nothing else from the parable of the sower, it needs to be this. Some will understand, and some won't. Some are going to get it, and some are going to miss it. And Jesus knows that. And so he directs his words here specifically to him who has ears, let him hear. Let him comprehend, let him understand what is being taught here. Well, what will the people hear in these cautions? Those who are here, this crowd that's come, they've gathered around Jesus. What would they hear? Well, there would be some there who would hear this and their conclusion would be this. This is too costly. This is too much expected. This is not worth the demands. This is not what I thought it was. And so they're turned away, turned back by the hard sayings of Jesus. Those would be those that they have, they do not have the ears to hear. They've heard the words, but that's all they've heard. They've not really understood what's being offered to them, what's being presented to them here in the words of Jesus. But there are others who would be there and they would hear these words of Jesus and they would think this. This is Christ. This is Jesus. This is God. And as Peter, as we read in John chapter 6, said, This is the one with the words of life. I would be an absolute fool to turn away and walk away from him now. That's what they hear. See, we understand a couple of things about this text. First of all, this text is not an attempt 
to keep men and women from choosing to follow Christ because it's something that's so hard, few of you can do it. That's not what it is here. Rather, it is to clear the air, to do away with the confusion. So if there are those who are coming and thinking they want to be a disciple of Christ and not knowing what it means, not knowing what it's implied, Jesus is clearing up the fog. Let's get all the misconceptions out of the way. But it's not an attempt to keep people from following Christ. It's an attempt from keeping people from being deceived into thinking they're following Christ and they're not. That's what he's doing. The second thing about this text we need to realize is this. This is not a call for the spiritual macho man. The spiritual macho person who hears these teachings and they're inspired by the challenge. Now, there are people like that. Man, you put a challenge in front of them and they're, they, they've got to do it. No, you get two wickets ahead of Steve, Dave's, and Croquet. That's a challenge for him. <laughs> and he's got to get in front. <laughs> And there are people that, that are like that. They think that way. They, they like a challenge and they just go from one challenge to another. You want to motivate them? Man, you put a carrot out there. Put something that they'll prize them and they'll go after that. That's not what this is. This isn't a challenge to the spiritual macho people to say, Well, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be determined and I'm going to do it. That's not what this is. And don't understand it that way. Rather, it's this. It is a call to those who come to Christ in their weakness. They come and they hear these words of what is demanded and what is expected of them if they're going to follow Christ. And they hear these words and there is a trembling of the feet. There is an alarm of the heart. And there is great fear, but they realize I have no other place to go. I have no other refuge. I must come to Christ. And they come to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I need your mercies. I can't do this, but I trust that you can in me if you require it of me. In other words, the person who recognizes the grace of God. It's grace here, folks. He's not saying... I'm looking for a few good men. He's looking for a few weak, poor, mourning, broken people who are recognized this is what Christ demands. Christ is deserving of this. I can't do this in and of myself, but I will come to Him and I will plead for His mercy and His grace until I get it. That's grace. It's not a show. You know, we're not going to get to the end and say, well, Jesus, you laid down the law. This is what it means to be a disciple. You laid it down and I did it. You're not going to do that. The people of God will get to the end and they'll get to the end and say, Lord, I marvel. I marvel. I marvel at what you were able to do through me. It's all of you. Yes, there was much in the way of affairs. And Lord, there was so much, so many times when, even as, a, as your disciple, I didn't love you more than I love these. I failed so miserably. But you're a God of grace. You're so merciful. And my debt to you is greater than it's ever been. 
So we must rightly understand his counsel here. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Don't hear in this. Don't hear in these teachings here. This is an extreme. This is extreme. Can't do this. I'm not going to do this. But nor should you hear in this by George. He said, do it, I'll do it. You need to hear in this. Lord, you've acquired it of me. Can't do it. But I will come to you. I will cast myself upon you for the grace and for the power to walk in some level, some measure of obedience to what you've called us to here. To cast yourself upon the grace of God. That's what he's calling us to. So have you gotten this thing right? This thing called discipleship, Christianity. Simply put, Jesus Christ is rightly esteemed. He's regarded as the Lord God of heaven who is worthy of any sacrifice I must make. And coming to Him is the most crucial decision I'll ever make. Weigh it out. And to get to that end of that and say, here's the honest truth. My heart says, I can't finish this tower. My heart says, I can't win this battle. But to hear what's being taught here with ears that hear, hear this. By His grace, I will come. And by His grace, I will live the life He's called me to live for His glory. Casting ourselves on Him, His grace. Let's pray. Lord, I just simply hope that your word's been clear. The truth that you desire to express to these hearts has not been lost by the frailties of this tongue and this mind. And I thank you that there are those who can say, yes, I have weighed and I would not have come except I knew there was no place else to go. What a testimony of your grace. Pray, O oh Father, that you would deepen in our hearts a love for you. And those occasions in our life as believers when it seems that following after you is a very costly venture. That you would remind us afresh of just exactly who you are. And to see the surpassing value of Christ. We give thanks to you in Jesus' name. Amen.